Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I am a proud Brummie, that is Royfield Brown. Today we are joined by the heavyweight pundits that are Amanda Marcotte of Salon in New York and by Mick Wright in Norwich in England. Say hello, folks. Uh, hello, folks. Hello. In a week that will see the world go to war over football, we ask, what does exactly the UK government's victory yesterday mean for Brexit? The eyes to the right, 324. The nose to the left, 298. Thank you. The eyes to the right, 324. The nose to the left, 298. So the eyes have it. The eyes have it. Unlock. Order. Minister to move formally. That amendments A and B in lieu of Lord's Amendment 19 be made. Thank you to Mr. Secretary Davis, ahead of himself in so moving. The question is that amendments A and B in lieu of Lord's Amendment 19 be made. As many as are that opinion say aye. Aye! Of the contrary, no. I think the eyes of it, the eyes Mick, there's been some dispute about exactly how much the government has had to promise to the Tory Remainers to win yesterday's vote in Parliament. Die-hard Brexiteers are claiming the government has accepted it will have to require parliamentary approval for any deal done with the EU, and that if no deal is concluded by the end of November, they have to seek parliamentary approval for any future reading, for any future move, sorry, regarding Brexit. Um, What's your take on yesterday's vote in Parliament? Well, I think if you trust Theresa May, I've got a bridge in London to sell you. The, the, the practice, this, this whole thing is just a complete farce. The problem with it for me is um, 
well, Labour are terrible in the sense that Labour are happy to accept the word of the so-called Tory moderates. And they're only sort of moderate on this. They're not sort of moderate on anything else. Um, and the problem, I've got a few problems with this Brexit thing. One is it just sucks all the oxygen out of all the other political debate in the country. And when you've got a growing homelessness crisis, an education system in crisis, a health service in crisis, like we are in political stasis because of these, because of manoeuvres around Brexit. You've got, uh, Theresa May got absolutely hammered at PMQs today. We're recording on a Wednesday, so that's PMQs day. And, Jeremy Corbyn absolutely filleted her. But the trouble with him filleting her there is they're not, the opposition isn't actually very good the rest of the time because their Brexit policy is sort of mealy-mouthed and talking about a, a, a jobs-first Brexit, right, which is sort of meaningless because there's nothing they can do unless they're in power. I don't think they'll get in power unless they have a stronger policy around this Brexit issue. Um, and I think if they had any guts, they might just say, listen, this is a state and it will not work because we're still sort of arguing over um, what the solution we think is while the Europeans sit there and go, well, whatever solution you come up with, the ones that you've put on the table so far are unacceptable to us. So it's like, I mean, it is like going to the World Cup and saying, well, we want to play with six balls and four goalies. Are you happy with that? And obviously FIFA's going to go, no, you're fucking mad. And then we go, oh, well, we're taking our ball away. Surely, surely that analogy, Mick, is completely wrong because going to the World Cup is about engaging with the world. We're saying we want to disengage. No, so, no, that analogy isn't wrong because the point is what we keep saying is that we want to continue to have a, a relationship with Europe. But I, I'll give you another analogy. It's like being it's like being in a marriage and saying, oh, by the way, um, I want to go and get touched up by America and uh, so just don't. And, and America's not that interested either. So we're just kind of like, like basically um, Britain are becoming, you know, the sad spare bedroom wankers of the world. Mm. Um, Amanda, you, you exactly. <laughs> well, no, I, I always love yours, Mick. Um, Amanda, is that the way you Americans are seeing us, that we are um, the, the sad bedroom wankers of the world because we cannot sort out our position on Brexit? You know, the sad fact of the matter is I don't know how much energy uh, Americans have to give to uh, watching English politics right now. And it's an unfortunate thing because this is such a big deal. But uh, it, it hasn't really gotten a lot of play in the American press. It, you know, just some... Some coverage in, you know, world affairs type of newspapers, you know, like in the New York Times and stuff. But, you know, I think most Americans couldn't tell you first thing about Brexit right now. All right. But but you're not most Americans. So I'm going to drill about like uh, most Americans can't tell you about anything about British politics because we overinflate the interest anyone has. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think, you know, Americans are generally self-centered to begin with. And then, you know, with the Trump show, we have no energy or time for anybody else. But yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've obviously, you know, especially preparing for this episode, I, I read about the Brexit situation. And my sense is, it's it it, it is like what Mick was saying. I, I don't know that there's and you were saying, Royfield, I, I don't know that it's a, going to be easy to get this over with because the fundamental questions that caused this to happen in the first place don't seem really resolved to me, you know, from a distance. I'm looking at it and it seems that 
the the kind of issues that led to this happening in the first place are are making it impossible to even make an agreement about how to do this. I mean, am I right about that? No, you're absolutely right. And I think that what Mick said before is, is is absolutely true in that because this is such a big deal, it's absolutely crippled British politics in a way that nothing has crippled British politics in the last 70 years. You know, the, we've never had such a political crisis since the end of the Second World War. Well, Suez is the one that people always refer to, so I guess that's a post-war crisis of a similar level. But, or... but, 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 the, but, the, but Suez as a crisis didn't last for two plus years. It was a crisis which brought down the government, changed British policy, it was neatly done and changed all right, give me another one. Win- winter of discontent. Winter of discontent, change of government. Discontent started in about December of 1978. Thatcher came in in May of 79. But you've got and, mass You've got mass industrial but, uh, unrest a, a, for a, a long period. But, but, what we, but what we didn't have is political status. It's a political gridlock where... The both two main political parties are fighting against each other. Winter of discontent was the culmination of labour relations through the 1970s, admittedly, of which the Tories would say that uh, the the power of the unions was too much. The Tories rubbed their hands with glee. But we actually have labour in fighting. We have Tory in fighting. we, um, We have directionless government in effect. But Amanda, you said to me that you've done done a certain amount of reading on this uh, to prep. And I must admit, I had to as well, because re- I had to actually read through the Lord's Amendments, which actually the government uh, had actually uh, defeated. But let's I'm just going to go through a couple of main points. So granting of new powers to oversee changes made to the EU law by the government. That's what the government defeated the, the Lord Amendments on. Removing uh, the precise date of Brexit from any wording of the bill seems pretty major to me. Uh, make stain in the European economic area, i.e. the Norway option, the negotiating objective for the UK and the transferring the EU's charter of fundamental rights into EU into UK law. These are the things which the government avoided having to do tomorrow. So, Amanda, look, looking at that, I'm thinking Brexiteers can sleep peacefully in their Brexit beds now. Surely Brexit now means Brexit. Yeah, it seems like they have a lot of leverage. And, and I was actually genuinely surprised at, you know, at how much leverage the Brexiters have considering, you know, the sense that I got across the pond that, you know, as soon as the vote was over a couple of years ago, that people were regretting it. So I would have thought they'd have less leverage. And yet here we are. It does seem that that they're getting almost everything they want. Right. Um, you know, again, you all know more about this than I do. Uh, you, you, no, nobody knows anything in Britain anymore. And I know loads of stuff. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, will we actually exit um, in May of next year? Will we exit no. from the European Union? Categoric no. All right then, Mick. So, who are the real zealots? The MPs who want Parliament to have a final say on Brexit, or those who say that the will of people should be paramount? Who are the zealots? In oh, that can case? I hate them all? Is it possible to just hate them all? Absolutely, as long as you can explain your reasons and why, sir. Uh, because there's the the truly zealot-like Remainers are not 
trying to win the win the argument in any kind of effective way. They're mainly flailing around calling anyone they can get their hands on racist, which I sort of agree with in a sense, because I think most people who voted for Brexit at some level yeah. are racist. You but, know what, Mick? Mick, Mick okay, right. But, and it's something which I've said. One second, one second. Hold that thought. Yeah, but I, can't let, I can't let that point go, because my mother, Jamaican immigrant, being in the country for 50 plus years, voted for Brexit. So you can't call my mum a no, racist. No, hold on. You can call her wrong, hold on, no racist. A, that's some bullshit debating technique, as you well know, because it's like like I just said a your mum joke. I definitely didn't, because I said I believe most people who voted for Mm. Brexit are at some level somewhat racist. The thing is, as well, avoiding getting into a discussion about your mum, who must be excellent because she produced you, but avoiding (laughs) that... Sorry, but and we can get into the, the the wider debate about whether black people can be racist or otherwise can only be no, racially no, no, no. prejudiced, prejudice, right? right? But we'll avoid that debate and just get into the notion of I spent a lot of time around the Brexit vote happening, talking to people from all sorts of communities, and there is a very clear thing amongst immigrant communities who came over much earlier than the than the more recent immigrant communities you know people who are settled people in the country whose whose attitude is kind of we don't want any more immigration right that's very possible right and it's eminently possible for people who have completely integrated into britain to have a notion that immigration now versus immigration then is a net negative even if it's not and that's to do with a very poorly framed debate in politics and the media about immigration, right? So I'm sorry, but I think a lot of people were swayed by fundamentally racist arguments over that. But on the other side, with the leavers, you're seeing more and more there is some really dodgy stuff. Look at Wigmore and Banks talking in Parliament this week about their involvement and discussions with the Russians, that's some, that's some, there was a lot of un, unseemly stuff going on with the Leave campaign that bears looking at. The other thing is it was moronic ever to have a referendum where it didn't require an, a, a more than a simple majority because it was always going to be like this. A 48-52 you know, um, is always going to be relitigated over and over again. It's why most countries, Ireland included, go for, mo- go for a, a super majority in referendums. Otherwise... You can't say we've definitely won because half the people that swung leave are now dead. <laughs> well, not half, but, you know, a large proportion. A yeah. large proportion of it them are dead. It seems to me if you had to vote again, do you think that Remain would win? Yeah, but marginally. And then we'd yeah. relitigate it again. Yeah, no, th- th- this is going to be the, the, the big scar in British politics going forward. Literally whatever happens, whether we do technically leave, whether we don't actually really leave, Come, come March of next year, because this is our this whole vote is on su- such a nice thing. We can only pull her off. That's the issue for me. Well, but for a lot of people, or at least for some people, they see that as being marginal to arguments and notions of British sovereignty. But uh, yesterday, or oh, this is uh, the day before, I believe, we had Philip Lee, uh, a prominent uh, minister in the Tory government, who quit over brexit but then he um, abstained in the vote because he was bought off by those those tory I know, bribes, talk, wasn't about, it? talk about taking the sting out of your own resignation by going i'm out and then going 
but it's okay. I'll just I'll just sit here quietly and sit on my hands. It's the most feckless resignation in in the past twenty years of British politics, and there's been some really feckless resignation. But the art of the resignation seems to be lost. You know, you've got um, your head of uh, the EPA over there in the United States. There, Amanda, a man who's mired in scandal, left, right, and centre, mm-hmm. and he and, and he won't and can't resign. Um, at least us Brits have some level of principle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> we we just do our scumbaggery with a classier accent, Royfield. That doesn't that's sorry, but you know. It's a better class of corruption. I have I have a question uh, about all this that I'm a little confused about having read um some of the coverage about this. It, I want to know not what Americans think about this ongoing process, but what Europeans think about it, because it doesn't. I didn't really get a sense of that at all from the coverage I've read. They think no. we've shot ourselves in the genitals. That's what yeah. I think. Yeah, but and I don't think they they they, re, they really care now. I think it's now factored in that we've made a massive geopolitical and economic mistake, and that actually um, we do not matter. What matters actually is core Europe, which is German economic policy, French support for the uh, the idea of Europe, and actually the Italian uh, vote, the new populist government in in Italy, actually means much more to to the future of the European Union and and to that experiment. That actually it's factored in, it's baked in now. Britain can do whatever it's whatever it wants. At some point, there will be a realignment with Britain and Europe under some kind of European economic area treaty, some Norwegian-like solution. It doesn't matter. We're going to have our laws and our rules um, aligned with Europe. Um, there might not be uh, freedom of movement when it comes to to workers, but it's all baked in. What is more important is, is core European countries who are some who historically have been much more signed up to the European dream. There is a strong desire to give us a punishment beating as well. There's a strong fact. There's a strong faction within the European elites, which I'm always dubious about using as a word now because it's like it's such a, a you know a kind of a a, term. it's like an Alex Jones type word, but um, you know, the European. Uh, a bureaucratic class. There's a certain, there are quite a few of them who just think, right, we can't let the Italians think that leaving might be a good option either. So what we need to do is kick the hell out of Britain in these negotiations, make it Mm. very clear that you'll get two to the back of the knees. If you think about (laughs) it, it's like a IRA style. (laughs) But, um, uh, but basically I don't think that will happen because I think in the end, Merkel is kind of a, a pretty sensible operator. Macron is a technocrat. The two of them are going to go, look, on balance, we kind of want to be able to push our goods through the through Britain because it's a, it's a, it is a huge market and it's, it's a staging post for the American markets. But in the end, you know, they've got us over a barrel. And it, the, well, that, that's the thing. They, they absolutely hold all the cards. Yeah, the last thing I'd say on this is that Theresa May cannot negotiate properly because it's she's clearly a weakened almost fatally weakened leader and she can't negotiate properly because 
the, the, the Europeans know that she is, she'd like stretch Armstrong with the mad backbenchers pulling her in one direction and the moderates pulling her in the other way. She's got no, um, you know, directions of movement she can really go in. And it's whatever deal she gets n- is not going to be liked by enough people. It's going to be a complete disaster. <laughs> Sorry about it. No, no, no. Listen, I, I, I had um, visions of my uh, late 70s, early 80s childhood there and played with my stretch Armstrong. So thanks for that little uh, take, a uh, walk down uh, Nostalgia Road for you there, Mick. But um, on that note, let us uh, go to Trump's week, uh, bestriding planet Earth. Oh, I apologize from the United States, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. There it is, with a handshake and a deal. That is Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un signing off on their centerpiece summit de- declaration. The agreement commits Trump and Kim to the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. But Trump is revealing another deal that the two leaders struck after that signing ceremony. He says the U.S. will suspend military exercises with South Korea. He calls them very expensive and very provocative to Kim. It's a surprise announcement this morning and is drawing a lot of attention. I want to bring our soldiers back home. We have right now 32,000 soldiers in South Korea. And I'd like to be able to bring them back home, but that's not part of the equation right now. At some point, I hope it will be, but not right now. We will be stopping the war games, which will save us a tremendous amount of money, unless and until we see that the future negotiation is not going along like it should. Okay, Mr. Denmark, we've all heard that again. I'm sure you heard it early this morning when it was first made by the president. What do you think? Well, it's pretty surprising. Um, the fact that uh, exercises are on the table um, is actually not very new. The United States has in the past um, paused or even canceled exercises in order to set uh, groundwork and set a good environment for negotiation. Um, but the fact that um, the president referred to them as provocative was quite surprising. That's been the language that China and North Korea have used. Um, Also, it it appears that North Korea is getting the suspension of exercises 
um, without giving anything in return. The president just saying that we're going to freeze these exercises. Amanda, quite simply, mm-hmm. has Donald Trump made diplomacy great again? When <laughs> President Obama <laughs> was... Hear me out, hear me out, hear me out, folks. <laughs> President Obama was attacked as weak, naive, uh, for even daring to suggest when he became president in 2008 that he would talk to America's presidents. Now, Trump is turning that into an asset. He's bestriding the globe. Discuss. Yeah, um, you know, yesterday I went on Twitter and, and solemnly warned everybody that they should just take a break from watching cable news for, a, a, you know, at least a few hours, if not a day, because my fear was that, you know, especially looking at some of the early coverage from the New York Times was that there was going to be such a desperation on journalists to give Trump a win, to give him some kind of credit so they could seem fair minded that they were going to, you know, fall over themselves claiming that he had somehow done something remarkable with this North Korea situation. Um, I was pleasantly surprised to see that the worm turned pretty quickly (laughs) and people realized that he had done exactly what most of us feared he would do, which is go in, get flattered, um, be so bedazzled by how awesome it must be to be a, you know, murderous dictator and get away with it, that he would just literally give away, maybe not the whole shop, but basically most everything that he could and, and, and get nothing in return. And that is largely what happened. And I'm, I'm pleased to see that the mainstream media seems to grasp that Trump utterly failed to do anything. And also that he doesn't seem to actually understand what a failure he is. But Amanda, should should we be bothered what the mainstream media thinks about this? Or should we be more concerned about what right-leaning media thinks about this? Is Fox News saying this was a failure, you know, nothing actually happened? Because surely they're speaking to Trump's base and, and actually that was that is going to be that or them that will change the mood music. Um, I don't really think you can do anything to change Trump's base. I don't think that they care one way or another about North Korea um, outside of, you know, being able to say that Trump did something that Obama couldn't do. Um, And I, I haven't really been watching Fox News on this, but I suspect if I was going to guess, I would guess that as soon as he gets home, they're just going to kind of forget about it and get back to race baiting and, and a lot of stories about how political correctness is ruining the United States. Um, you know, I do think the mainstream media was more relevant here because it, it it's an issue where there are still some Americans that I think are low information voters that maybe voted for Trump because he was the guy on The Apprentice. <laughs> And they, if they walked away from, if they kind of turned on the news and got the impression that Trump was somehow the negotiator he claimed he was, then I think that that could have helped him at least going into the midterms here in the U.S. It could have, it could have caused some real problems for people in terms of, I, I think the danger with Trump is always that he will be taken seriously that he will actually get normalized in some sort of way that that his own myth making could start to take hold that he actually knows how to do things like make a deal 
And so I... But Amanda, is, hasn't that already started to happen? Because his, yeah. his numbers are still relatively no, low for a president at, at his tenure, but they are inching up, or at least they've stabilised. You know, a couple of months after him being in power, they were in the mid to low 30s. Now he's 40% and up. So surely Trump is being normalised. Yep, he is. And and that was, I think, the danger of that even getting worse. And because the fact of the matter is people can kind of get used to anything. And it's just even just the psychology of hearing the words President Donald Trump over and over again, to the point where you stop feeling shock, the shock and awe that you should feel upon hearing that, <laughs> that this has happened to us. Um, you know, I think it's a problem. It's a real problem. And having him do normal presidenty things like have a, a summit with a, you know, a foreign leader that seems to go well. It's a real danger. Um, you know, I, so I, it does matter. And I think, I do think that, um, it's probably not going to be, if I was going to predict what's going to happen next, it's that he's going to come home to the U.S. and he's going to see that he didn't actually get the coverage that he thought he was going to get. And he's going to flip out on Twitter and then that's going to take over the news cycle. So I'm mildly optimistic that he's going to undermine what little ground he's made uh, up in terms of his reputation here. Okay, Mick. Who got most out of that photo op? Sorry, summit. Was it Trump or was it Kim Jong Un? Kim, massively so, because um, well, look, the main thing that came out of it is the fact that Trump, without discussing it with the South Koreans or the Japanese, said, "Oh, we're not going to do the war games anymore, right? We're not going to do the exercises anymore." That's a huge issue. Right. I think it's interesting as well. You look at the Chinese, the Chinese are super happy. It's a good move in their sphere of influence, right? They don't have to bother doing sanctions on the on the North Koreans anymore. Kim is sort of playing a little bit more ball for them because what they want really is to be able to sell as me- as much stuff to the West as possible. And they'd rather that their, you know, completely educationally subnormal brother you know, little brother, North Korea just has behaved itself. They didn't really enjoy putting sanctions in. They just sort of did it because they thought, oh God, we need to do this because it's going to cause us problems in international trade. Trump went in there and he got very little. Like you look at it, it's such a, it's a meager shopping list of things, most of which won't happen. And then look as well at what he said. He was, this is the most sort of, you can see he's learning from dictators because he came out and he said, well, you know, um, it could go well, it might not, but even if it doesn't go well, I'll just come up with an excuse for why it wasn't my fault. He literally said that. That was his that was his quote. And it's like so he's at this point where he's spending so much time around these authoritarian dictators and thinking that they're great. It's like brilliant. You know, I, I could just do what they do. Amanda, with the benefit of hindsight, what's gonna be most significant this week? The fact that Trump slagged off Canada was petulant with, uh, amongst his allies at the G seven or that he actually shook hands with a third generation North Korean leader? Oh, definitely the G seven. The G seven is far more significant. He actually has created serious problems. He actually did real damage to the United States there. I don't know exactly what the like 
end result is going to be. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the other members of the G7 took very seriously his his decision, his sort of single-handed decision to start a trade war for absolutely no reason. And, you know, I don't even, I, the effects of that, I think, are going to be felt for a while. Um, the, aggress- the aggressive stance that Trudeau and others have had about this um, is actually kind of amazing. I, I, I didn't actually expect them to go to the mat so hard. I don't know if it's that they're trying to intimidate him or, or if they're just fed up with it. Um, either way, it's not good for us. And the other thing, don't I think, you think they'll have to back down? Though I think in the end they'll have to back down. They might. They might. I. I, I really don't know, and I don't really know because this is somewhat uncharted territory in terms of how how they handle this. I, I. I think they don't even really know because the United States has never done anything like this, at least in our lifetimes. And I, I think the other thing that. I'm a little worried is getting less play that needs to be thought about more is the fact that Trump like went on camera and told reporters that he wants Russia to be re-included in the G7 and making it the G8 again. Right. And I think that's, that's, (laughs) that's the sort of. Amanda, if, if Trump is making diplomacy great again, right, <laughs> God, just, stop saying that. No, no, no. Let, let's, just, let's just go go with the premise, right? It's all about engaging with our ideological or economic foes, isn't it? And one way of engaging with Putin, you could argue, would be to say to Russia, "Okay, you come back into the wider tent. Uh, it's a G eight or a G plus seven plus one, whatever you want to call it." <laughs> And and let and and let's uh, break bread and commune and talk about wider economic and global security issues. I mean, that's definitely the line that Trump was using, as well as spouting the words political correctness over and over again to sort of endear himself to his audience, which he seems to believe is only his base. But I I have very dark. I, I'm going to darkly intimate that something worse is going on. I mean, I think if it had just been taken on its own, it would have been one thing. But, you know, then Trump goes into these meetings and he literally does Putin's exactly what Putin would have told him to do, which is trash longstanding relationships between the United States and other countries, um, destabilize the global economy, create tensions where none had existed before, and basically serve up a plate full of Vladimir Putin's, you know, propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. Well, propaganda that to his own countrymen, that democracy is failing, that all these supposedly liberal democracies are, you know, one step away from collapse. Um, Look how quickly they turn on each other, that sort of thing. Um, It's he, he so effectively did exactly what Putin wanted him would have wanted him to do that. I'm terrified by the implications. Mick, that photograph of the leaders of the G7, or let's say the, the G6 minus America, uh, <laughs> literally glowering uh, over Trump, and he was sat like a petulant schoolchild, uh, arms folded, going, no, 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 no. Is that going to be one of the defining images of this presidency, or at least of 
2018. Well, look, I think it's I think it was an extremely powerful image, but you've what you've got to uh, the other, and it will be because essentially Merkel's office, who are very savvy political operators, got their photo out first. But do remember that there are photos from other teams, including the US, that came out showing completely different perspectives on that same meeting. So you caught a moment in time there and it implies one thing, right? But I don't necessarily believe that the G6 leaders were there shouting at Trump, right? I don't think, I think it, it plays well to their domestic audiences to say we are tough on Trump in this room, right? But uh, but generally, I think it's a slightly more nuanced thing than that. I think if they could, they will go back to flattering him in short order in in basically taking the the view that look it, it works what works for kim jong-un probably will work for us as well certainly Theresa may as she might as well you know have jelly for teeth she's got no bite when it comes to trump and because of our desperate situation with brexit as we discussed in the first half of the show the uk is in no position to criticize or or, or do anything to trump because we're desperate for america to throw us any kind of bone that looks like a trade deal did, that didn't really answer your question, did it? But no, no, it it, it didn't really. But it was a perfect end <laughs> to a satisfactory section. So now let's go on to our takeaways of the last seven days. Hello and welcome to the things that made England. I'm Royfield Brown, and with me I have David Crowther of the History of England. It was the best of times. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And the king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do SCAR. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views. And it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England... As she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that is David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. Cool. So, this is the time in the show where we kick off our shoes, we relax with, with, with a glass of wine or maybe a cocktail and talk about stuff other than politics. Amanda, you're a sophisticated woman. You live in hipster Brooklyn. What's been your takeaway of the last seven days? Well, um, you know, I was really excited this morning to see the. I'm probably going to step all over your uh, takeaway, but I was really excited 
this morning to see that the US, Mexico and Canada are going to host the 2026 World Cup. It, it was literally one of those moments where it made me realize that there is a future, there is like a light at the end of this tunnel. <laughs> and if we can just kind of slog through the next couple of years, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe six years, you know, our eight years from now, we'll all be watching these games together and it will feel like a distant bad memory. Um, <laughs> everything that's go- kind of going on now. I couldn't disagree with really? you. Really? I couldn't disagree with you more. Now, don't start me on the world governance of football <laughs> and FIFA. But if you want, to, if you want real corruption, yeah. right? You know, it's at the heart of that. FIFA is at the heart of things, right? Number one, right? Maybe it's because I'm now officially an old fart. <laughs> I'm in my fiftieth year. That I can remember when the World Cup was sixteen countries, and when it went up to twenty-four, and I think nineteen eighty-two, I, I gasped. I, there's something about the World Cup being the elite, the pinnacle of world football. Now, the only reason why you have it across three countries, well, there's a few reasons why they're proposing to have it across three countries, is because they want there to be 48 nations playing in the World Cup. The whole point of the World Cup is that each region, each continent, plays amongst itself to qualify and then you get the best out of those so you get CONCACAF which is North America then you get South America playing against itself you get Europe Asia Australasia if you can have 48 countries qualifying there's only 200 countries in the world that's a one in four chance of you getting in so that's the reason why you need to stretch it over three countries which then takes away from the uniqueness of the world cup that in 1982 it went to spain spain could cope with 24 countries going there and with the whole world media turned on spain and when it was in england in 1966 i think it was 16 countries if you're gonna have 48 countries how many stadiums you need to build for that hotels that you need it's not special anymore and it shouldn't I, be I hear what, I, yeah but look, that wasn't amanda's point though was I, it I, I, hear what you're, I hear what you're saying i just want to inject and say one thing so isn't it good that we are not that finally they're not having it in some country that's going to have to build all that infrastructure i mean i think half the reason of doing it in mexico canada and the united states is we already have the infrastructure in place I'll, I will give you that, but then why doesn't it? Why is it not in England? We have all the stadiums ready to go. Germany could host it tomorrow at, at, at a push, etc. But I'm all for it going to new countries, and there is an inherent contradiction in my point in that yes, you shouldn't have to build a whole load of infrastructure and stadiums like Brazil had to in the last World Cup in the middle of nowhere in Manaus in the middle of the jungle and then deprive uh, poor Brazilians of basic uh, welfare and food stuff because the government then finds itself too strapped to be able to build the stadiums. So there's an inherent com- contradiction between me being the romantic saying let's put it in new countries let's spread the gospel of football and then you put it in the United States. You only had it in 1994. Mexico's had it twice, 1970 and 1986 already. Canada, yeah, that's something just something new. But like, oh, it's big and it's bloated. Mick, you're going to disagree with me. Um, no, I, no, I agree with you about all that stuff. For the point, I think that the, 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 the essential point to what Amanda said was like, it's good because... In 2026, you know, past the Trump era, we will have something else to, you know, we'll have something else to look forward to. 
and and there's a sense of continuity and the world coming together in some way. Um, but mm. uh, look, the best thing about World Cups is sticker albums. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I absolutely agree with you. And the 2010 World Cup, I got Maisha, my daughter, a Panini football album. She was excited for two days. After that, she wasn't going down to the to the newsagent, to the grocery store, to go and get those stickers. It was Dad. Yeah, of course. It was me that was going in there, you know, spend, spending two, three, four pounds at a time, then putting the stickers in the album. You know, so, yeah, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. Mick, what's been your takeaway of the last seven minutes? Uh, I want to talk about Anthony Bourdain. Um, I think my my takeaway is sort of it's, it's half positive and half negative. So ne- from a negative point of view... Um, there were some egregious examples of poor reporting around someone taking their own life, notably by CNN, who, in a sense, were were Bourdain's professional family. They they in their initial report on his death, they talked about the method and did various other things that all the experts tell you was a bad thing to do, um, because suicidal contagion is a thing. Uh, another big offender that I want to call out would be Newsweek, who did so much SEO-driven reporting that you had. Anthony Bourdain, who is, and then any person in his life, including his daughter and his wife, his ex-wife and, and his current girlfriend, all these kind of things. And apparently the editor of Newsweek was emailing around. I say apparently the emails leaked, saying, a brilliant success. Now, what they're celebrating there is the success of SEO jacking the death of a man. The positive side of it, I think, is that if there is any positives, and it's very hard to have that in in the loss of such a you know a great figure, is that a he's left a body of work which is phenomenal. B you look at someone who who became successful later in life, forty four when his when Kitchen Confidential sort of rocketed him to success, and and uh, you know finally the work he left behind leaves us a really good message about going out into the world. Um, exploring new things, exploring new places, new food, new cultures, new environments. And the, the best thing about his work and the thing that I've been thinking about a lot this week is that it, he he always went to the places that were most interesting, like so, or, or would go across the other side of the tracks, go to the places where the most interesting food was being eaten, not necessarily the most high-end food. And I think that's a really admirable thing. And for a country like the US where most people don't have passports. Someone like Bourdain is a great example of going to go out into the world. Let's be uh, globally conscious and socially conscious in a way that the US, UK, most of the West could be better at. Amen. Mm. Yeah, well said, <laughs> sir. Well said. Um, my takeaway, uh, I have actually kind of, kind of tweet, tweeted this out. Um, my laptop, the thing which I use to record all my shows and which I'm using right now, is on the way out. And it gave me pause for thought yesterday when I took it into the Apple store uh, because the the uh, internal speakers haven't been working for a week. Um, I can still edit because I just push the headphones in and the headphone socket still works. But if I want to um, watch a video without headphones on, watch a little bit of Netflix or something on YouTube, um, it doesn't work. And it's not a critical problem. It's an annoyance because for the most part, I work with headphones. But I took it into the Apple store yesterday and he looked at it up and down. He put software on it. He did X and Y and Z and went, yeah, it, it's kind of screwed. And I went, well, let, let's have it fixed. And he said, well, that'll be £600, sir. 
So in uh, in American money, what's that? You know, eight hundred and fifty dollars. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So and he said, at that level of money, uh, you're best off just getting a new laptop. Now, when I sat down and thought about this, um, I am an international hobo. There's no two ways about it. In the last six years since I've had this thing, I've been to Canada, Jamaica, the U.S. France, Denmark, Sweden, Israel, and that's just off the top of my head. And this laptop has seen me through marriage breakups. It's three, seen me through new relationships start. It's the amount of times I've had to get it out at um, customs, uh, you know, to be checked through at airport security. It's been the one constant of my life. During that time, I've had numerous mobile phones and as i said i've had one or two girlfriends (laughs) this is this has been literally the one constant and i don't want to see the old duffer go it's gonna have to go and i and i I feel somewhat like a, a an owner of a pet when that pet is getting old and doddery and you're just waiting for the time when you have to take it to the vet and say put it down you know it's only a laptop but it's been with me. It's been a constant, and um, I'm I'm just slightly mourning a bit of bit of metal and plastic. Um, but do you know what's do you know what's interesting about that though? So I was at I was at um, Cogex, which is Britain's well UK's biggest AI and robotics convention at the start of this week, and it's interesting what you're saying about that because the uh, one of the big conversation topics at the at the whole conference was the ability of humans to put characteristics into inanimate objects but i kind of get it with computers and and technology that we have this intimate connection with because it's an extension of Mm. self like you know you talk about like um the mobile phone is an extension of our brain you know it's um it's trading off some of our intelligence that computer has been an extension of you for that long um and it is more reliable than some (laughs) humans in a sense so it's not it's not such a ridiculous feeling to have i don't think Oh, good. Because I must admit, uh, when I sat down and, and thought about it, I thought, bloody hell, th- this is sad. I did also say, get a grip. But no, I, I, th- I think you're completely and utterly right. You know, especially, um, and I'm an extreme example, because I don't live anywhere and live everywhere at the same time. And this, in effect, is my home. This is my portal of how people contact me and how I contact them. Um and, and, and it is the same for everybody, but it's the constant. This is in effect the wallpaper to my life, you know, because I don't live in my home in in in, in London anymore. I have a home in in uh, San Francisco, um, and now I'm talking to you both um, from the third place, which is sometimes my home, my parents' place in Birmingham, and the one thing that connects them all together is actually this I mean, laptop. But anyway, that's me. Um, Folks, thank you uh, for listening to us witter on about Trump, Brexit, laptops, the World Cup and Anthony Bourdain. Um, This has been um, a slightly punchier new Mid-Atlantic. But just before we go, uh, Mick Wright, uh, what are you up to at the moment and how can people find you on the socials? Um, Well, two things. Um, I I just started writing a new book about... um the way that McDonald's can act as a mirror for different country uh, cultures, like how the menu changes and stuff. Uh, So that's happening. Uh, My novel's coming out soon, so you can support that when that happens. 
Uh, and you can get me on Twitter uh, at Broker Bottle Boy. If you didn't like me on the show, uh, d- don't d- just tweet Royfield and don't at me in. Someone <laughs> did that last time. It really upset me because I'm not as much of an asshole as you think I am, person who didn't like me on the show. <laughs> Nick, you're going to have to develop a thicker skin, sir. Uh, I've got a really thick skin, man. I had, I, had, I had Russian ultras send me rape threats once. It's much worse when a nice lady tells you that you're horrible on the show than it is... Uh, mean real mean stuff amanda what have you been up to since you were last on the show oh same old same old uh writing for salon.com and tweeting at amanda marcott and i and i saw you moonlighting on msnbc i like it's like being on this podcast wasn't big enough for you and prestigious enough you had to go on uh you know mainstream cable media yeah yeah i mean I, I wouldn't call it moonlighting. That's part of my job is getting out there and hustling, right? <laughs> good, good. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter uh, where, yeah, uh, badly uh, formatted tweets abound, where I'm just quite simply at Royfield. I did say uh, two weeks ago that by now we would have set up the new page on Facebook, sorry, the new group on Facebook, uh, where you can throw your topics and ideas into. Uh, bear with me, should have that sorted by next week. Of course, on the Twitter, we are at Mid-Atlantic Show. Um, remember, we're, we're the nice people. Um, we like to hug and embrace all Maddie manner of idiots but we tell them that they are so because ultimately uh, we believe in tolerance that's what we are this has been mid-atlantic show we'll see you all again soon being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.